Hello, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast and movie fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield, here with Soren Howe, and today we're going to talk about episode two of season two, A Lie Agreed Upon, part two. Um, and like we did, <laughs> a lot of twos. Like we did last time, we're just going to quickly run through the events of the episode, and um, then we'll sort of launch into this, the discussion. Um, this picks up pretty cleanly from where the last one left off. It's sort of... Uh, the sun is setting on the same... It's all, it's all happening in the same day, I think. Mm. Uh, the sun is setting on this day that started with uh, Seth and Al having their big brawl that launched them over the balcony of the gem. Um, and this whole episode kind of... Uh, I said to you uh, before we started recording, it kind of takes place in one single act. Um, it's not really split cleanly. And again, like we talked about last week, it's interesting that the show plays with kind of the structure of TV and this week it's doing a different thing, but also playing with that structure in that it is not split into sort of what we think of as storytelling acts right. in or, that very didactic plot. way. Like yeah, exa- plot, plot. Yeah, it exactly. Matter. Yeah. It's sort of like everyone is gathered in these small groups, having conversations that are all building up to this final confrontation that happens at the very end of the episode. Uh, so we have, First of all, Bullock and Alma, uh, he goes to her and basically says, we need to get out of here, um, but I'll leave it up to you if you want to come with me. Let me, you know, I'll be back tonight and you'll have made your decision. So for the rest of the episode, Alma is talking with Sophia's tutor, um, Sarah Paulson, I don't remember the character's name, about what, what she wants to do. And she feels sort of, she ends up feeling sort of frustrated by this implication that Seth wants her to leave Sophia behind. Because she doesn't like the idea that Seth doesn't respect her as the as Sophia's caretaker. I think she kind of thinks that he views it as, well, the camp is really taking care of her. Everyone kind of takes care of her. That he doesn't she is upset by the idea that he doesn't view her as Sophia's primary caretaker. Um, because being Sophia's caretaker has meant so much to her. Um and meanwhile, uh Trixie and Saul. Saul is very like hopped up on I don't know what he must be on. I don't know what kind of painkillers they had, or is he just drunk? I it think could, the idea is he's just drunk. Could be drunk, it could be laudanum, it could be any number of things. Yeah, but he is like very. He's a bit. Out I don't. Of it. He is very out of it, and Trixie's sort of taking care of him. And Saul is really again like when uh, Seth comes to him and sort of implies, "I'm getting out of here. Will you take care of my new wife and my brother's son?" He says, he tells him to fuck off, basically. He says, I'll do it, but you're an asshole right. um, for making me do that for you and for leaving me behind with this, when we've sacrificed so much and worked so hard to build this new life in, in this camp. Um, and that's, and I really like, well, we won't, we'll get into the discussion of it later, but that's basically for the rest of the episode, Seth is very slowly making his way back to the gym. Right. <laughs> um, because he is also like, uh, He's not on drugs, but he's very like <laughs> he's just exhausted. His head hurts. He is He's an uh, emotional guy. He's he is he's in his right state, you might say. Um and ch- what's interesting is as they're leaving, uh Charlie, um, I think I read this right, he basically pretends that he feels faint in order to delay yeah. Seth from going to the gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I which is a great moment. Um, and they go back to, they start to head back to his house where they're met by Jane, who, um, well, first of all, Jane comes back into camp and she meets with Doc Cochran and she tells him she's dying. She wants to come back 
she doesn't say this outright, but the implication is she wants to die where Bill died. Right. And I think she actually says to, um, you know, please bury me with a view of Bill. Right. Just right, sweet. Right. Um, as sweet as Jane can ever be. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, Cochran basically says, you've been drinking too much. You got to quit drinking and then you'll be fine. Right. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, and then she meets up with... Um, with Seth and, and uh, Charlie, and she eventually gets it out gets it out of them what the situation is, and she says, "Well, I hate Al, uh, so I'll join you," um, which is not what Charlie wanted to happen because Charlie knows that she's only going to escalate the situation if she comes along. But mm-hmm. you know, there's only so much you can do. Um, and while the, while all this is happening at the gym, uh, Adams and Dan are the tension between them is is building and building and building, and. They're just getting progressively. Really, it's all. It's most mostly on Dan's part. He's getting progressively more pissed at Adams and at this uh, feeling he has that Adams is usurping him in uh, this posse in in Al's eyes, really. Um, and this sort of comes to a head when Adams' uh, partner, who's I don't they they don't say the name in the episode, but you said it's Hawkeye, uh, comes in and he has some excuse for why he was late, and uh, Adams doesn't really. He sort of makes a show of telling him off, I think, for Al, but you, but Al can, Al sees right through this and says, like, he says something to the effect of, like, you didn't really mean that. You don't, I don't, you don't really care that he's late. Uh, you've clearly been letting him get away with this forever. Mm. And this infuriates Dan um, even further. And Dan goes and picks a fight with Hawkeye and, and beats the crap out of him. And then, uh, Slippery Dan <laughs> from the last episode. <laughs> Slippery Dan is there and he makes some comment that I don't even think is that inflammatory. He just says something and Adams is this makes Adams so mad that he grabs Dan and impales him on a, a an antlers uh, antlers that are hanging on the wall. Um and uh at this at this point Al basically points a gun at Dan and says, I'm going to shoot you if you don't stop. And Dan starts weeping and says, oh, that's just, that's just great. And when Yeah, Al he runs to... off to his room or some room in the end. He starts crying in the in the room there. Yeah. Um, and Al has to go and calm him down and he basically says, look, um, you and me, we're the same kind of guy. Like, we're working with Adams, but he's not like us. You and me are like brothers. Um, and again, how much, Al clearly doesn't have any real affection for most anyone um but you can tell that like first of all dan it's important to have dan in his corner so this is an important thing to do to calm him down uh but there is maybe even some small extent to which he cares about dan and that come that came across a little bit to me um and again as much as as al swearingen can't care about anyone yeah, no, we should definitely, we'll talk about that scene in more detail, because I, I would really like to talk about it. I think it's an important one. Yeah. So this all comes to a head as uh, Seth and Charlie and Jane roll up to the gym and shout at Al to come out, and Al is so frustrated and so annoyed, and he's talking about just everything, all the terrible things that have happened today, and they're putting up the freaking <laughs> telegraph lines, and God damn it! and eventually he comes down, you know, he gets dressed, he comes down, and he gives Seth his gun and his badge, and he says, you know, I hope you'll stay in town. <laughs> right, and he apologizes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he apologizes. 
and and walks back into the gym and you can tell that Jane is a little disappointed <laughs> in this outcome and Seth, and Seth is really taken aback really shocked that this is how it went down um but so at the end of the episode Seth goes home and um uh, Martha is is his wife's name I think we kept forgetting last week uh, Martha notes that he they put up a he he installed a bundling board in their bed and a bundling board again we'll get into this in this discussion of this but it is literally a board that splits down the middle of a bed um, separating the two people sleeping in it and she says well I removed it I hope you don't mind it's like it's like a mahitza right that's a <laughs> splitting <laughs> yeah. a, splitting a, a, a that's a an Orthodox Jewish uh, like services they split the the women and the men but yeah exactly for the bed and it's like uh i i don't know what the historical context of it was it was it a did you do it i think it's a it's a puritan it has its roots from i looked it up a little it's like a puritan uh invention okay yeah that makes sense (laughs) i mean the other (laughs) the other option is just separate beds but i guess if there's only one then that's what uh that's what you use yeah so that is a lie agreed upon part two and i think the way we should talk about this is just um talk about sort of the different groups as they split off um, in the run-up to this final confrontation, which doesn't end up being much of a confrontation, but that's sort of how the episode is structured. Um, actually, why don't we talk a little, can we just talk a little bit about the structure of the episode? Because sure, as I kind yeah. of alluded to before, uh, we talked last week about how that episode was edited in a way that's really unique for TV, where it's not just one scene, then the next scene, then the next scene where it was, it was cutting between different scenes, mm. weaving them together into each other, uh, to cre- and it creates the sensation of, like, roiling tension, uh, bubbling over and, and, and finally breaking when, when Al and Seth have their fight. Um, and this episode, you know, typically the way that TV breaks is you have, you know, an act, and then an, an act, and then an act, and it's, uh, on network TV or, or on basic cable, it's split up by commercials. They'll, they'll write around where the commercial breaks happen because they know, like, well, we need something to... We want to leave off here, maybe on this moment of tension, and then have that kind of simmering during the commercial break, and we'll come back to it. Uh, it's, they kind of have to... It's The TV is an interesting medium in that way because you kind of have to write around uh, breaks in your story. But, of course, that's not the case on HBO. Um, there's no commercials. And you can sort of structure your episode however you want. And you don't, even with a lot of HBO shows, I don't think you see a lot of play with that. Um, Like on Game of Thrones, you don't really see that. Game of Thrones is structured pretty similarly to how it would be on like basic cable. You know, there's no commercial breaks, but you can kind of sense where the commercial breaks would be. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I agree. And I was going to say, you know, it's not just HBO, right? So aside from these other, you know, there's stars and all these other channels, but also now that things are, streaming and there's no ads you know on netflix and things like that um there's more opportunity to to do some cool things with that although it's not always yeah as you said it's not always done um it's not always uh, uh manipulated uh even though it could be in a more um unusual way uh the, the the i think the way we're seeing it at least in the context of streaming now is that episodes end with cliffhangers which is extremely oh, yeah. extremely effective for me like it it <laughs> that's how i end up watching an entire show um uh in, you know in a day um but it's also very formulaic right if you're ending every episode with a 
Oh, what? You, oh, there's something that just happened at the end. So you got to watch the next episode. <laughs> uh, it's really well, effective to get someone to watch everything, but it isn't necessarily interesting per se. Yeah, well, it's funny. I remember when streaming, like when House of Cards first premiered, there was all this discussion of like, oh, we were talking about how we could just release the whole thing as one big video file and you could decide where you wanted to stop and start. Um, and like the promise of streaming never really was fulfilled in that way. Like streaming episodes of streaming TV are pretty much the same as they would be elsewhere. They're pretty distinct entities. They kind of like, maybe there's one continuous story and there's ways certainly that streaming shows like Netflix shows are written to be, like you said, conducive to binging. Like you want to watch the next episode right away because of how it ends. But it was really only, I can only think of Arrested Development season four. That's really the only streaming show I've ever seen that takes advantage of that format in the way that it is constantly jumping back and forth in time. And you're like getting new perspectives on scenes from three episodes ago. And it kind of, it benefits from being seen as all one as a single unit in that way. And the episode divides there are genuinely pretty arbitrary. In fact, so arbitrary that they could completely re-edit it into completely different episodes of different (laughs) lengths in a completely different chronological order. Yeah, and I would say, obviously, Um, to mixed effect, right? Not everybody liked that that approach. Yeah, I I really liked it. I got to say, I I really liked what they did with that season. Yeah, I I mean, it's not, you know, say what you will about the jokes. Like, obviously, it's not as funny as the previous seasons. Right. Um, But I think it was really ambitious, and it, it paid off for me in that way. I think one show that did sort of do that, not to get completely off track, but uh, Maniac, which is a, I don't know if you... I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, that did a bit of that. Um, not loads of it, uh, but there's a there's a, a period of time when you have parallel streams going on, and then once they converge, I guess it gets quite um, sort of usual, but uh, prior to that, there's a, there's a bit of that. Um, it's an interesting, interesting show. It's been stuck in my, uh, my memory for a while now. Uh, one <laughs> thing I just wanted to just uh, uh, say before we... Um, we get into the episode itself beyond just the structure um, is uh, I just want to say uh, thanks to, to felt pelt. Who's been a long time listener of the show um, had a great, uh, a great little tidbit for us for, from the last episode. We mentioned uh, this slippery Dan moment, um, which we'll talk about a lot more later. Um, but uh, apparently the, the bummer Dan slippery Dan thing was a, a, a real story from a memoir oh from God. someone who grew up in death. <laughs> Uh, that's crazy which is which is truly crazy and um yeah so uh apparently this is a uh like a a story that was told it's not necessarily i I don't know if it's so it really does come from a real memoir whether or not it itself is a true um uh true story is sort of unclear um but it is kind of an interesting tidbit because we were talking about it as a you know in terms of narrative and and television it's a you know it was a cool not really all that relevant moment in the uh, in the episode even though it connects to this episode it could have been anybody you know who ends up getting skewered on the uh antlers i guess it clears him out of the 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 cast um <laughs> so they don't have to like address the fact that he exists in the town now um but aside from that like he had no no plot plot point but it was it does add even more to the uh sort of the deadwood history and deadwood mythos and everything so anyway i just thought that was a a cool a cool point um if you check out the comments on last week's episode you'll see a link to it and we'll we'll, i'll try and include a um a link to the uh to the book to the memoir that has this uh this story in it that's so funny wow that's really (laughs) 
course, it's a real story. We're talking about how it's this like existential parable. <laughs> no, it's really happened. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, you know, it can be both. Why not? <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, getting to, so I think yeah, when we'll talk about this episode, what we can focus on the uh, on the bits that we uh, that we found the most compelling. Um, uh, you know, not every not every scene is uh, <laughs> essential to discuss, but I think there are uh, a few really you know big moments like for example al talking to dan or uh you know adams and dan uh competing why don't we why don't we start with um seth and saul because that's pretty early in the episode and sure. it has one of a really interesting moment first of all i love that his first words upon seeing saul are i'm sorry you got shot <laughs> um you know in a show where everyone can be kind of flowery with their language just yeah. the simplicity of that i found and he says it twice which is even better um, but what's really interesting to me about this scene is the, what, uh, Saul says, um, he says the line, I'm sick of knowing and you not saying, which is referring to, um, the fact that like we talked about last week, everyone knows that right. Seth yeah. and Alma are having an affair, but no one is going to say it. No one's going to talk about it. And I think that's really an important line in the context of that, in the, you know, coming off an hour where, which was all about people kind of accepting this, you know, the, the lie agreed upon, agreeing upon this, uh, you know, fiction that they all know is fiction, but it is just simpler to uh, accept the lie than to have to deal with the fallout from the truth. So for Saul to say, look, you know, I'm really tired of the being in this situation where I know, ev- I and everyone else knows what's going on, but you, you know, you don't trust me enough to actually talk about it or you don't respect me enough to actually talk to me about it. Um, I think that's a really, you know, I don't know if I want to use like the word powerful, but it is a really important moment, not just for that relationship between them, but also just thematically for what the show is kind of talking about with the, with the relationships between every character to finally have a character say, look, we got to be honest with each other here. Um, even though we both know the truth, there's a lot there of, is, yeah, there's a lot of that in this episode too, because, you know, um, we've never really heard to my recollection, somebody can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but to my recollection, we've never heard Seth and Alma speak about their relationship. <laughs> what is this? What are we doing? Is this just casual? Um, they, <laughs> they have a real conversation, uh, you know, where they, you know, they admit that they, you know, love each other or that they, you know. Um, so I, I believe, I don't know if they both say it to each other, but they at least say it to other characters that they, um, that they're in love with each other. And that's something that's not been made explicit. Obviously they liked each other, but whether or not that was, uh, something that was beyond just like a physical attraction is, uh, was something that was, um, not explicitly stated up until now. So everything's sort of out in the open, um, for, in terms of their relationship, uh, both, literally and uh like you know out in the open in that everybody knows and everybody can see it and everybody saw the alan and seth fight but also uh between them because uh you know we haven't really seen them have these conversations in um in as much depth and and just as a a a side point you were talking about the structure of this episode and i think the other thing that i think is kind of cool about this episode is that it's um it plays almost like the b-sides to the last to the last uh episode Hmm. um if uh if the last episode was sort of a um, and you don't realize it until the very end of the episode, I think. But if the last episode, if the, if you were to draw a line for the arc and the the line sort of tension, um, it was sort of a like a mountain, you know, 
climbing up uh, and building tension, and then obviously there's the fight and and how that all goes down. Um, but this episode is sort of the opposite, and you don't. And it, again, it takes till the end to realize. But when it comes to this sort of anticlimax, where there isn't a big showdown, there's a showdown, but it's like not a not a physical showdown of any sort. It does feel more like the inverse of that that plot, and it sort of works as a as a calmer down, you know, as an episode, because <laughs> it's, hmm. um, you know, it's the, and it's, again, as you said, it all takes place over the course of a day, but it, it, it is the sunset on, the, you know, on, on it, as a corollary of the sunrise in the first episode. So, yeah, no, I thought that was, uh, yeah, that yeah. Was cool. I mean, it's funny because, like, once you get to the end of the episode, it's kind of, you get this feeling of, like, oh, we're kind of going back to the status quo that was established in the season finale. Um, but there is, which is a very TV thing. It's like, all right, we can have this action, but everything's kind of have to be back. We have to get everything back where we found it by the end of the episode. Right. Um, but in this case, there is still that kind of, I keep saying the word tension. There is still that tension left over between them. Not everything is the same because, well, I mean, we didn't even mention this in the, in the recap, but because it's kind of a small thing, but Al gets new information from Adam's, and oh, it's I'm actually pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to completely kind of misstate and misunderstand what this the significance of this information. <laughs> but he gets information that um, what is it? Uh, Yankton is under the impression that uh, Seth is in town working for a uh, working for the interests of Montana, mm-hmm. the state, or, or I don't even know if it's a state yet. The the settled territory of Montana. But I mean, the whole the whole conflict of this show is wanting Deadwood to be part of an incorporated state, right? Um, so there is or the all resistance this, to that, right? Or the or the resi- yeah, exactly. Not everyone wants that, obviously. Um, but there is all of a sudden this um, incentive for Al that to, to not kill Seth that that he didn't see coming. And of course, by by the way, <laughs> I should say this information is one of the many things in this episode from Adams that makes Dan extremely mad <laughs> because he's like, he's kind of like, can we, we just kill him? Like, I hate this guy. Can we just kill him? And Adams is coming with this. Well, you know, maybe that's there. There are solid reasons not to do that. Right. And it's also information that, you know, it's it doesn't appear that Adams learned that between last episode and this episode, so he's sort of not said anything. Oh, no, he says he knew it at the time of the fight, but which, he says something like it wasn't which, the best. Which is, like, it's essential information, because the entire premise of, as we said last episode, the entire premise of Al picking, uh, according to the last episode, this is what Al said, is that he, they, he wanted uh, Seth to be sheriff, because, uh, you know, then they might not get, you know, run roughshod over by the you know, new law people in the new, uh, the new government, um, which is exactly apparently what he can offer them. So, uh, you know, he sort of let this entire conflict run without saying anything when, uh, that's exactly what Al had anticipated and he was right. And death will be valuable in that regard, at least according to the information that, uh, that Adams provided. Uh, he doesn't seem like a liar, but he doesn't seem like he's entirely forthright with the information that he has. No, it's almost, you get the impression that he was sort of saving this just in case. Mm. Uh, like, like, listen, like, like he doesn't, Adam strikes me as the kind of person who is not very upfront about everything right, exactly. he knows, exactly. which is why Al finds it hard to trust him, obviously. But you, you definitely like, I got the impression that he was saving this piece of information, uh, 
just in case Al ever had a reason to want Seth dead. And obviously, like the fight, hap- the fight kind of exploded so fast that he didn't get a chance to say it uh, before uh, Al was holding a knife to Seth's throat. Right. Exactly. You know. Um, but of course, you know, if I were Al, I would be pretty pissed. You know, that I almost. Oh yeah. Because you know, that was uh, that would have been really um, quite bad. Of course, he might never never have said anything um, if <laughs> if he had killed Seth. He would just be like, oh, I'm not going to say anything because that'll just make me look bad. Um, the other, by the way, so the other thing about this being sort of the B side is that a lot of characters that were uh, pushed off to the side last episode all get a, a lot more time here. So obviously Doc Cochran has a lot more to do in this. He had like, what, two lines in the last episode, something like yeah. that. Um, Charlie Utter, Merrick, Trixie. Um, and uh, and I, the reason I and say Jane. that is that I, I, I'd uh, just to, to br- pick up on, on Trixie because this has to do with. Um, uh, with the the conversation between uh, Seth and Saul, is that uh, Trixie is also around for a lot of these, um, a lot of this encounter, and she is pretty like evidently not into what's going on at all. She's pretty pissed off at Seth for causing trouble, and uh, actually, you start to see a little a little bit of a parallel between Trixie and Al. Um, because I think, and I would say this is the uh, thesis of, well, it's the thesis of Deadwood, it's the thesis, as we've talked about before, but it's also like Al's, you know, reason to be is that, uh, you know, as the episode wraps up and he's giving his monologue, which we'll we, we'll talk about later, is also his, um, uh, you know, it's that he just wants things to stay the same, and that's exactly what Trixie says is that, you know, there's like way too much going on right now, and I just want to go back to doing, you know, my job, and this is, you know. Uh, and Seth is making this all very unstable and un, you know, unreliable. And I, I want to go back to doing that. Um, and uh, and she's she's just irritated. And, and she doesn't want people to obviously she doesn't want people to die in the process. But that's like I think fundamentally her issue with it is that you know he's he's rocking the boat. Um, and it's the same with Al is that he's just afraid of these new elements, not because he is afraid of them in in for what they are but that he doesn't know what they are he doesn't necessarily understand them and how they'll play a role in his life and he's he can't control them you know he and he doesn't have control over that and that bothers him much like it bothers Trixie so I you know it's kind of a, a, a an interesting parallel there um but it's especially the case that you know uh because of what Seth did now Saul is uh hurt and I think that also really bothers Trixie yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, yeah, Trixie and Al do sort of have this that same perspective of just... And again, we, we talk about the status quo in terms of television, but that is very much uh, Al's desire, right? Is just for everything to be not just under his control, but because... Well, yeah, but... Sorry. <laughs> I was just arguing with myself, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, this idea that any any drastic change uh, is completely opposed to the idea of Al having control over the situation. And Trixie, you know, it is a similar thing. Obviously, she is not, she does not have that same, well, I don't know if she, I don't think she has a desire for control in the same way that Al does. Um, certainly, she does not have the control that Al does. But for her, it's it's almost the opposite perspective, but for uh, coming to the same conclusion, it's like, from her perspective, having no control over it, anything in the camp. Yeah, life is so much more dangerous. Uh, it is so much uh, more 
uh, uh, I was about to say perilous, but that means the same thing as dangerous. Um, it is so much more difficult to live in a camp where everything is, where you can't, you know, set your foot, set your feet firmly on the ground because it keeps shifting under your feet. And it's interesting to compare that to, I mean, first of all, to someone like Seth, who just appears to have no concern whatsoever for how much he's rocking the boat, whether, you know, it's not even clear if he recognizes how much he's rocking the boat because he has so, so, uh, because he cares so little about it. Well, he's just got tunnel vision. Yeah, Uh, yeah, he does. He doesn't seem to be able to comprehend anything else at the moment. Uh, which is why he's just plowing ahead, trying to make his way to the gem throughout the whole episode. I want, I'm interested to hear your take on, there's this uh, implication among some of the characters that Seth wants to die in this episode, that he is going to the gem because he wants uh, to get shot. And that was, I found that interesting because a lot of characters say it, and it wasn't really my takeaway. Um, <laughs> for, I, I, I was much more... Uh, along your line of thinking, this idea that he is just so focused uh, on literally the one goal of just getting his shit back, that nothing else matters to him. There is no other, like, there is no conversation in his head about about the possible ramifications of this. Like, he is just, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get my... And I'm going to get my stuff, and that's it. That's all, that's what I need to do right now. Yeah, so I think it was, um, I think there's a couple of ways you you might consider it. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer per se, but he, um, he definitely seems to want to go, um, to, to like, as if the, he had two items right on his to-do list. One was to get his things back and the other was to go and find Alma Garrett, um, at night and, you know, make a decision. Um, and in, in terms of, being you know having those blinders on and just heading straight for item number one on that list yes i think that's the case Uh, as for whether or not he wanted to die i don't know that he wanted to die in the sense that he was um despairing or um you know uh suicidal you know nothing like that um however you know you do get sort of the impression that he's in this you know as we saw last episode and, and into this episode is that he has this ridiculous situation on his hand and hands and he's um and as they point out you know he is ashamed and he can't you know you can't run away from that uh and uh, so he's in this terrible position is either he plays house uh which he doesn't really want to do and you know you can kind of understand that um on one hand uh, and on the other hand he could run away with Alma Garrett which is extremely um you know uh dishonorable especially since he's made this commitment to Martha and William. Um, so, you know, dying is uh, sort of makes the decision for him in some ways. Um, but I think it, in terms of what it symbolizes in the episode after he gets his stuff back, especially because of the way Al phrases it, uh, and then, of course, as, as the episode ends, is, you know, he's re accept. you know, by getting rid of his, you know, there's a, obviously the symbolism of him shedding his uh his official duties as sheriff um and then potentially forever um of course that's not what happens but that that could have been what had happened um and this is him taking those things back and saying no i'm going to stay and i'm going to be part of this town which means i'm going to give up on this on this other part of my life because i can't maintain both of them um and you know not to make it 
you know, not to get too cutesy with it, but I mean, a lie agreed upon, as we said, can refer to quite a lot of things. And I think that there's this other thing that, uh, you know, that Martha and Seth have to agree on now, which is that they're willing to be, you know, husband and wife properly in this house, which is, you know, yet another thing to, um, you know, it's not a real relationship. It's a completely manufactured one. So it's, they have to sort of play parent to, to William, which is, and, and to, you know, to the rest of the town, you know, pretend to be a properly married couple in that sense. Um, and so he's he's agreeing to be back in all of this, and that connects back to what we talked about last episode with, you know, freedom versus a uh, versus a lack of um, a lack of freedom uh, in this sense. So, so as 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 far as death is an escape from that, maybe I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think you're I, I think you're right. I think it's significant that he said he tells Alma I'll be back in a couple hours, but he goes home to Martha. He right. doesn't visit Alma again. Right. And I, I think you're right that he is just, he is so committed to uh, this course of action that it almost, it's not that he wants to die. It's just that it doesn't matter to him whether he lives or dies. And you can argue, I think, about whether or not that's basically the same thing, whether or not it at the end of the day, it means the same thing. But I think there is a key distinction of, you know, what is the one thing he... Seth is a guy who wants one thing at a time, and he can think about one thing at a time. <laughs> um, and that's not to say he's stupid, it's just he is, like you say, he has tunnel vision, and he can only really focus on one particular course of action at once, um, which is why, obviously, you know, he at the end of last episode when he give sends Mar- brings Martha and William to the house and then says, I got to go. Like, I can't, I know we have a thing to do, but I can't do that right now. Right. I heard like, we have a conversation to have, uh, or whatever, or a life to lead, but I have to do this first. And it gets to the point, maybe exacerbated by his physical condition. <laughs> um, like he talks about his, how he has a headache, you know, maybe there, he is just so, distracted by uh his physical pain and by his you know emotional the emotional need that is uh building up in him because he doesn't have his and this again this is all because he doesn't have his stuff and like you said that does symbolize something for him but i think it is you could almost say it is as simple as i need to get my stuff back (laughs) you know i think there's an extent to which it is literally that simple for him I think that is true. I think that is true. It's just that, you know, this was a, you know, we shouldn't forget last season and how resistant he was to being sheriff. Um, and that that's he, true. You know, true. And, and that it really does have a lot of symbolic, symbolic meaning, especially in the context of Deadwood, which is itself a town that basically operates completely without, you know, outside the wall. You know, two, uh, one person died this episode. Somebody died last episode. Uh, there's absolutely no consequences to any of it. Um, yeah, it, in fact, the, the punchline of Slippery Dan dying is that when Adams brings him to, to Woo's uh, pigsty, they're not even done eating uh, Bummer Tan. Right, exactly. Exactly. And by the way, that's something to note in this uh, this show, now that we're seeing more and more of the pigs, is that, um, you know, clearly when you're a nobody, you end up being eaten by the pigs. And if you're somebody, you get buried. And I think that's also a a clear, I don't know if it's a class distinction or what you want to call it, but it's there's a clear difference between certain people uh, and certain cast members, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's like what I was talking about, the difference between Al and Trixie is there is this, Trixie is someone who's keenly aware of her status and right. her position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, she's very aware that like, 
if I died, I'm going to the pigs because I, in the terms of this camp, I don't matter that much. Right. Um, Which would be, it's right, actually yeah. an interesting question. I don't know if she would go to the pigs, but I think she thinks she would go to the pigs. I, I don't know. Yeah, if, yeah. I don't know if Al would allow that, but that's yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, exactly. And, and I don't think that, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's reasonable to assume that prostitutes do not have in general, the status of being buried and having a Christian funeral in the context of, uh, uh, what they did for a living, I think they might be, you know, according to the their the rules of that society, they probably wouldn't be held in very high regard. Um, which is ironic, right? Of course, but the but the the saloon owner or the the brothel owner gets you know propped up. Um, something, by the way, we didn't mention in the the recap, um, but is something that's going on in the background here is is Maddie and Joni are sh- are setting up their uh, their brothel. Uh, as well, so yeah, and just it's worth... it's it's going to be high end, is the whole thing, right? Right, much different than the other, uh, um, much different than the other, uh, the other, the other two saloons, and uh, and it won't even be a saloon, I guess. It's I think it's just a brothel, but um, yeah, but just on that note again of of A characters and, and B characters from last episode to this episode, um, is that uh, you know Powers Booth uh, as Cy Tolliver, he has one one scene in this <laughs> in this episode <laughs> and he was featured so heavily in last uh, the last episode and the same thing goes for for Jane um uh, in the reverse where she had one one line in the last episode but now is uh, quite central um so how how did you feel about Jane coming back uh, in in force I mean I'm thrilled I loved that character last <laughs> season and when she left I was like well obviously they're bringing her back <laughs> and I think like I, I almost and obviously, you know, we're watching this from the perspective of a decade and a half later, almost more than a decade and a half later. So it's really hard to say, like, what the how much of the show is influenced by the reception to it at the time. Mm. But I almost get the impression that as they were breaking season one, they did not know that that character would be so like popular magnetic. Mm. Um so as they're making season two, it's like, all right, well, we got to bring her back. Like, and again, like, I don't know what the reception to that character was at the time, but like it has, she has to have been popular. She is <laughs> so charismatic and not charismatic in the sense of like, as a person in the, in a right, real yeah, world, yeah, no, yeah. but as a character, like she, she is just so likable and you just love to watch her. So like, yeah, when, when one of the first things, like she didn't even have to be in the first episode, but they made a point of showing like, Hey, by, we're not going to get to this yet, but she's back. Uh, we'll kind of elaborate on this later, but we want you to know episode one, season two, she's here. And uh, how do you, how do you read, um, cause I think they, they touch on this uh, at least I think in two scenes in this episode, um, with her sort of ambiguous, uh, uh, feelings about her gender. It seems to be, I don't know if that's a, something that you're, you're reading into this at all. I don't read her as having ambiguous feelings about that. Um, I mean, this is such, this is such a complicated conversation in 2019, right? <laughs> uh, let alone in 18, whatever right. this is. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, she doesn't have a, a person like Jane wouldn't have even the barest understanding of the complexities of like gender expression that we do in 2019. Like, I don't know how she thinks of herself. Right. I yeah. don't think she thinks of herself as anything but a woman, but obviously there is like, she is not like other women. Right. That like that, that, that much is obvious. Every, she knows that, mm-hmm. but I think that is the extent of her understanding of herself because that's all the understanding that a person like her would be capable of having just because like there, there wasn't any 
if there was scholarship on this at the time and, and like, you know, academic research, she wouldn't even, she wouldn't have access to that and no one was doing it anyway. But she, so she, so there's, I mean, the reason I bring it up is there's this scene where she's being examined by the doctor and she's really resistant to, um, you know, all he's doing is he's just checking her heart, you know, with a, with a, um, a stethoscope. Um, but he, she's really, she's like, I'm not going to look, you know, like she's, she's almost, I don't know, you know, we always see her extremely bundled up and we, you know, she seems like put mm-hmm. off by her, oh, own, yeah. her own nakedness. Um, and, uh, and then the, she tells that story a little bit later to Charlie and Seth about how I, I, unless I misremember this, she told the story and how somebody thought she was a man, I think. Yes. Um, and I, it's just both of those things are used to reintroduce this character back into the show. And it just seems like a very, you know, it's obviously they've, they've talked about it a bit in the past and I just thought it was an interesting, uh, I mean, well, we're talking about two different time periods. This is what we don't, we're not even talking about the fact that this show is airing in 2005, of probably. Of yeah. So, like, do these showrunners have the language to, yeah. like, describe what what this impl- what this obvious implication is with this character? Mm. And it's I, and I think that be, I think it's interesting that they're being very, like, tasteful about that. Like, it's I, vague. I, I am, yeah, it's kept vague. I mean. Yeah. I am not like I'm not going to sit here and say, well, obviously, you know, uh, Jane is a transgender man. Like, I'm not going to say that because I don't think that that is what the show is saying. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the show is saying that this is a woman who is does not feel comfortable expressing femininity and does not feel comfortable mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, being no, yeah. perceived as, you know, a woman. And that the implication that is that, that that has are so different today than they were back then that like. You know, if we're talking about how this character identifies, I think she identifies as a woman, but yeah. the way that she feels would be treated so much differently today. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think there's also, you know, how she she's also, um, in in wrestling with it herself. She, you know, she tells this story as like a like, can you believe that he thought I was a man? Isn't that crazy? But like, <laughs> I don't even know if she says it like that. I think she just like. Well, but like it, she wants I don't think them she to find it. it like that. I think she says it like that. But my point is that she's sort of using that as a cover for like, would would you think that? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, she's she is definitely like you're you're absolutely right. In that moment, she is searching for a reaction. Right, exactly. And she is upset that like Seth is falling asleep and and, and Charlie uh, can't hear anything. Charlie can't hear anything. Like, yeah, she is <laughs> looking for them to react some way, and she is presenting it as a like funny anecdote. Right. Yeah basically giving them she is giving them cover to laugh at this funny anecdote but right. she is also like yeah you're right like there she to, to put it simply she wants to talk about this <laughs> yeah it seems to be it seems to be i don't know i mean and i don't know that it'll come up in any sort of serious context later but um yeah i mean from a you know sort of a 2019 lens um it's good to see that it, you know it's 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 interesting to see that and it's uh you know it's it's fun to talk about it with um with modern language and see how they they handle it here and like like you said it's quite tasteful it's done in a in a in a sort of by it by keeping it vague they don't have to address it in any sort of serious uh context but it's also yeah. not it's also not like a, it's not like made out to be a joke per se you know it's funny like if they had just if this show, if her arc was about like being transgender, I, I think I would actually like that a lot less. Not because I'm, <laughs> not because I'm anti-transgender, obviously, <laughs> um, but it would seem so like, and, and you know, I, it would seem so like they were so out of their depth and they were doing this uh, 
unnecessarily because her story can resonate with those themes uh, without it being explicit. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think it's more interesting to do it this way and more true to that character and who and who she would be. Exactly. Who she probably Ex- was. Exactly. You don't want to, you know, do that sort of presentist thing where you go back and rewrite characters as being, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's, it, you know, it's like, well, that's how we would understand it. But it's like, that's not, that's not what, that's not how it would have gone down at the time. Um, it would have manifested differently even if the underlying themes were the same. And that's, that's I think that's what they're doing. Um, I also like that bit where she she's telling uh, uh, Doc Cochran, um, she asks him, uh, he's asking her questions and then she says something like, do you mock me? And it's just hilarious because while um, Doc Cochran is sometimes sarcastic, he's he's basically always earnest. And so he's just like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, nope. I mean, I, I, you know, he's very open about even his condemnation of, you know, the fact that she's drinking herself to death and all the rest of it. He doesn't really hide anything. Um, and he is pretty clear when he, he, he disapproves of something, but the idea that he would be mocking her, is just, you know, absurd, but he's just so earnest about, you know, his, and he's so straightforward yeah. about what he believes. That makes Cochran such an interesting character. Like, in the in terms of the dynamic of the show, because what we've been talking about for the for this episode and the past one is how pretty much everyone on the show is completely willing to go along with a falsehood right. if it makes something easier. And Cochran is like the only person in Deadwood who obviously he he's in that room and he just doesn't say anything. I think you know, like we said, he has two lines in that last episode. That's why because he does not want to be party to that uh, to to the lie agreed upon in any way. That's just not who he is. Right. Um, and it makes it, it makes him really fun to, to sort of bounce off these other characters. Um, so did you, uh, did you make anything of, um, of, uh, just, just so we can cover it? Cause I, I don't know that there's too much to be said, but of almost deliberations in this episode with, um, uh, what's her name? Mrs. Miss Isringhausen. Pick the um, most complicated name possible for this one. You um, know, I, it's, I have a note here that says. Not sure how I feel about the Elma scenes in this one. <laughs> and I'm kind of still there. You yeah, know? okay. I'm kind of like, you know, like we said, this episode is kind of, it's it's one act and it's constructed of these one-on-one conversations or mm. two-on-one conversations. And Alma's scenes are so, I found them kind of repetitive in this episode. And They're it almost... Mostly expository, you know. In... Yeah, it makes me feel like it would have been better served... And I think it would have been more interesting if this if they had been collapsed into one big scene, maybe in the middle of the episode, because it, as it stands, it's like every time we cut back to her, she's kind of having the same conversation and right. it's it doesn't really develop enough to where it's justified to intersperse it throughout the episode. I think um, actually, you know, this scene, the part of the problem is that, you know, a lot of these conversations are between people we know and care about and from previous contexts and um Miss Ingringhausen, Isringhausen is a, a like the character had oh basically no lines last episode and has just been introduced and we have no connection to whatsoever. Yeah, um, you know, and I, I just do want to say really quick, it is so weird to see you know character actress Sarah Paulson yeah in a role that is so at least so far like devoid of any personality yeah so my character it's like I want her to like I know I see you do stuff all the time like you're known for roles that go interesting places mm. and and like i just saw her in uh glass 
uh, the other weekend. Right, right, it's like, right. yeah, like that's the role that you've become accustomed to seeing Sarah Paulson do is like this very specific, like she's a character actress. So it is so weird to see her in this role that well, is just It's nothing. funny you say that because as I've often said, um, you know, I find it so weird uh, to see characters from Deadwood in other shows or movies where they have like these bit parts, these like weird, <laughs> like nothing roles. Like I said uh, last season um, that Paula Malcolmson who plays Trixie and is so you know, probably one of the best characters on this whole show. Um, and she plays uh, in the hunger game. She plays uh, Katniss's mother and basically has nothing That's to do. Right. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, you know, you wouldn't even know that. And it's just like a, nothing minor role in a big movie you know granted i mean i guess it's, it was probably you know it was a paycheck you know but so much mm-hmm. got it you know that that role but she wasn't given anything to do in that scene and it in that in that sorry that scene probably was one scene uh you know in those movies um and uh and yet you know when you see deadwood you realize that she has this incredible range and can do so much yeah i know that frustrates you about the john wick movies which i'm on record as loving very dearly that Ian McShane, you feel, has so little to do. And he doesn't oh, yeah. have a lot to do. I think he's good in those movies, but you're right. He's It is a very, it is not a nothing role, but it is a very, like, we had to have someone read these lines. Right, exactly. You know, and, you know, even in dumb movies, like, what was that, Hercules? Uh, you know, Ian McShane has... Oh, that's right, he was in that. He was in that, but, like, he at least he was, like, a character in it. You know, he was, like, his, you know, everybody was goofy in that movie, but he was very amusing, you know. It was like, all right, that's something, you know, for him to do. But he's just so much more interesting than... And I, this, I think this is the season where, just to foreshadow a bit, that uh, Ian McShane maybe gives some of his absolute best performances. It's just unbelievable. I, I can't remember if it's this season or next season, but I think it's this season. Um, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get there when we get there. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so, so yeah, I agree that these scenes don't really say much other than that, um, you know, there's this metaphor of living on a volcano is basically how it would be to, to leave with, um, leave with Seth. And also they're, they're, you know, debating, this whole Sophia situation, which also I don't really understand. They could take Sophia if they really wanted to. I mean, I don't know why that would be such a big deal. Yeah. That's the other thing that kind of bothered me is that it's not, it wasn't clear to me where Isringhausen got this impression that Seth wanted to leave without Sophia. Right. Um, and I wonder if this is, maybe this is, you know, sort of the first glimpses of her character. If she's just inventing that for her own reasons, uh, maybe I don't know, or maybe I missed something. But it, yeah, it was not clear to me yeah, at they all never why she to, said that. Yeah, they never seem to have like it's not like Seth and and uh, Sophia have like a bad relationship or something. Um, they don't yeah, have, there's they never have any relationship yeah. really. Yeah, well, and there's never there was no indication to me of why Isringhausen would even like where she heard where she got that information. You know what would make this scene so much, but these scenes like infinitely better. I realize is, um. And obviously, probably it wouldn't have worked because, you know, Alma's very proper and wouldn't have had this conversation with a man, I guess. Um, but Ellsworth would have been a perfect character to have these conversations with because he cares about so- Sophia. He has a relationship with Alma Garrett. They, like, the three of them have been through a lot together, and there would have been a lot more weight to the conversation had they been talking um, Whereas Ellsworth's not even in the episode. It's like he's doing yeah. something else. I mean, why not? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you, I, I definitely get this impression that, the, and it's it's weird that it's written that way, but, like, they just sort of needed to have Alma say these lines. Yeah, not to, and they a, needed, not to a brick They needed wall, to yeah. have Alma, like, <laughs> come to this conclusion, and they're like, well, we have this kind of character who doesn't really do anything that she can be talking to. 
Um, but you're right. Yeah. Like the more interesting version of these scenes is she's talking to Ellsworth and having an actual co- like conversation with a back and forth and different perspectives. Well, with, yeah. Or whereas Isring has, has no perspective. Yeah. With meaning behind some of these lines. Right. Cause you know, when, when characters say things, you know, it's not always what they say that that matters. It's what they say in the context of who they are, what these characters have taught, said to each other in the past. So it means something, um, you know, I'm sorry you got shot. For example, it's not something that, you know, is inherently an interesting thing to say, uh, but it's in the context of the other dialogue that these two characters have had, their history together. You know, it's it obviously that's how narrative and <laughs> that's how TV shows and media work. Uh, you know, film and whatever, um, and story just storytelling in general is that when things are said, they're said in the context of the history of the character, which doesn't work if this character, if one of the characters is new, because there's no history there so you have to introduce the character and so like are we getting clues about who uh who this uh isringhausen person is or is she just serving as a uh, uh a sounding board which maybe she is i don't know it's un- unclear to me yeah that's definitely the impression i got and it's a shame because i thought you know i love alma as a character she's one of my favorite characters me too. Me too, yeah. and i'm like i'm really the way they play her in this episode is sort of like it comes dangerously close to like the woman scorned. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I don't, I think the show is better than that. I think that, I don't think that's the direction that they're going in, but that is how she comes across in some of these scenes of like, well, I don't know how he could even say that. And how, <laughs> how could he think that? And, and you know, how dare he? And I'm, we're, I'm nervous about how, about their next meeting, about how that, that conversation is going to go mm. down. And I have, I have faith in this show. I, this show has given me ample evidence that it is much smarter than that. But, that is kind of why I didn't really like the Alma scenes in this episode because they seem to be setting up something like that. And if, I, you know. I, I feel the exact same way. And the only reason I feel a little bit better about it is that um, I know I don't remember what happens. So I can't, I can't really can't like, I'm not um, being coy. Um, I remember bits and pieces of future plot lines that are really good and interesting. So I'm not as worried about, it in that sense because i'm like to get to that point then i don't think that's what happened but again i saw this whole series through now i don't know years ago so i i i don't remember i just know certain things happen so i don't know i'm hoping i'm hoping that doesn't become like a serious subplot but you know who knows um i suppose it's possible um i think that that that's most of the main the main bits. I think the last main uh, the the last uh, uh, central point is the uh, the fight in the bar uh, in the saloon. And uh, oh yeah, we should talk about that. Right. Um, and I don't know. I didn't. I didn't have. I didn't have that much to say about that. It's. Um, well, really, know. it's what, the what aftermath or, or the 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 dynamics between them, right? And what it, I think it was really. The reason I really like the scene where the, the aftermath where Al goes to talk to Dan is that, um, first of all, Dan is uh, like a big softie, as we know, even though he's kind of the murder man. Um, and uh, he's crying in this room. And uh, Al, you know, makes this this point, which I think was earnest. I don't think he was just saying it to make him feel better. He was like, look, you and I would not have run a, like a man through and just shrugged it off now we've seen al literally do that (laughs) so i don't know if that's quite accurate so but what is accurate is that they are both much more i think empathetic than adam seems to be um and it's funny that he 
the way he describes that, the way he plays off this idea that, oh, well, you know, like we have a heart and soul, but this guy, he's like a, you know, he's like a, he doesn't, you would never say this, but like, he's like a cyborg. He has no, he has no heart. The way he describes that is, well, if it was us, you know, we would have, um, we would have run him through two or three times, you know, just so he really got the message because we would really, we would really feel it. Yeah. (laughs) And that's how he describes like, like, oh yeah. Like uber masculine approach. Yeah, no, no. Exactly. (laughs) Um, yeah. But what he really means is that, you know, that, you know, that was cold you know? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. and, and way more, um, you know, Dan was beating this guy um, on the ground, this, this Hawkeye character. Um, and uh, by the way, can I just say uh, Jeremy Renner is an incredible actor because I didn't even recognize him. <laughs> um, oh, he's, he really disappeared. He just yeah, like... he is like a chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, so I thought, uh, no, but I, he, he really, um, he, you know, he's, he's, he's beating him, which is very visceral and he feels it. Um, whereas you could almost see Adams is the kind of person to send an assassin after someone. Yeah. You know, it's like a they're very different uh, strategies for dealing, for getting, getting to the same end result, but how you do it in the emotion, uh, emotional connection and the uh, immediacy of it are two completely different um, uh, ways of handling things and you know maybe al has used for both of them maybe he does or doesn't trust uh adams it's not really clear um he certainly seemed to trust him enough to take him on and you know in fairness uh, while he's causing a bit of tension with dan he's basically doing his job and he's providing useful information and you know yeah. keeping his own guy in check so you know i mean yeah there's definitely something to be said for like when dan starts beating this guy he is he means every punch but he doesn't he is not like he could kill him but he is not going in with the intent to kill right Mm. he is just so making a point bent out of shape yeah he's so bent out of shape and so frustrated that he just has to get it out with just like every hit whereas um (laughs) when adams gets frustrated he just picks up dan and kills him (laughs) in one move Mm -hmm. and walks away and yeah, it's really interesting to see like, you know, like Dan could have killed Hawkeye, but he didn't, he didn't intend, he didn't go in there. Like he didn't go in there with a knife. He didn't walk up and shoot him in the head. He just started right. hitting and he didn't really care what happened next. Uh, Adams for really no, really no reason at all. <laughs> like Dan, we understand is upset. Mm. Adams has no reason whatsoever to do this. He picks him up and impales him and leaves. It's, it's actually, yeah. it's twofold because uh, we know why, um, we know why Dan's doing it. And uh, we, we know why, why Adams is doing what he's doing because he's attacking his, his guy. But the guy that, that, um, that Dan's attacking is Adam's partner. Whereas yeah. the guy that Adams is attacking is just some guy. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> for Dan, but that's not because we know that, but like, it's not really relevant to, you know, Dan has no connection to this person. Um, or to, or to anyone. I mean, Superman has no connection to anyone in that in that um, uh, saloon. So you know, it's really just a, I'm. So these are complete. So these are different actions, right? One is I'm attacking somebody who who matters to you or is important to you in some capacity, and the other one is I'm going to kill this person in anger, uh, to show that I'm angry that I can't do anything about you beating up my my partner and it's just uh it's a it's cold it's cold in that sense yeah um, that, that that's the first adams has been kind of a perfunctory character in the past for me and this is a moment where i'm like all right i 
this is interesting. Like I kind of, I am getting a better sense of who this guy is. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I think he's, uh, yeah, he's good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's most of it. Um, I, but why don't we just close out with talking about this final scene? Yeah, the final scene is is uh, is worth talking about. Um, so I guess it, we can start it with. Um, we could start with. Uh, well, I do. I do want to actually before we talk about that, I just want to say that I like that both episodes have this conflict or this um, confrontation in the in the thoroughfare. But the first one is like you know, Seth and um, Al eating crap out of each other and this one is much more uh sort of cordial and and they and they have that so but there's this this mirror imagery there um and one's at night one's in the day etc etc um mm-hmm. but yeah so i think it uh just after that we we get merrick trying to get quotes or an interview uh about what happened yeah by the way my favorite shot in this episode is when it's showing everyone setting up with their guns for the showdown and it cuts to merrick literally licking his pen yeah <laughs> It's excellent. Yeah. I mean, he's he's very committed, um, and uh, and we have this funny like moment where uh, Merrick is he wants the quotes, but he doesn't want them to be um, offensive. Um, he wants them to be <laughs> decent, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't help but think of like you know whatever not to get political with it as we often say but like you know the new york times <laughs> you know would would be loath to publish you know the word fuck but at the same time you know will publish you know an entire like neo-nazi manifesto in the name of balance <laughs> it's like um it's just a funny it's a funny it's a funny like foreshadowing or maybe i mean maybe who, who knows i'm sure the new york times has been doing this for ages but it's funny to see you know, American bodying this thing. That's real journalism. And it's like, I don't know, real journalism would be quoting him if that's what he said. What's yeah, America is a fun character because he is so much like he is the most blatant example on the show. Maybe the only example on the show of like, clearly this is commentary on modern times and, right. and the modern media where he is someone who is so like he, he doesn't seem like an evil guy, but he is so kind of uh, slimily obsessed with getting the story. Right. Um, and like what he says to Seth when Seth starts to when Seth refuses to talk to him, he's like, "Well, don't you care about the First Amendment?" It's like, right. Shut up. Yeah, what do exactly. you care? Like you just you know what do you you don't you just want papers, uh, people to buy your paper? Um, and you know, and the 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 most obvious thing about why this is such sort of a grift here is that he was there for the whole thing. He could write an extremely <laughs> in depth first person account of what happened. Um, and instead he needs an, in- why does he even need a quote from Al? What, who cares? Or from anyone? I mean, he could, he, he could. Well, cause that's what people want to read, right? Yeah. I guess, but he could write down every single thing that happened and also the things that people said. Um, he doesn't record her, but I mean, that's, I mean, be a journalist. That's what you have to take notes shorthand. Come on. It's, it is funny that like you get the impression that he doesn't think readers will trust just his word. Cause he's always after quotes, yeah. right? He's always after getting someone else's account of an event yeah he's he's never like oh well i'll just write down what i saw happen and it's almost like he thinks well people won't believe it if i just say it i need to get what at what the what other people said and then i'll write that down and he also by the way i should also point out he doesn't seem to have any ally like he does no staff he doesn't at any point yeah. <laughs> to hire a report i mean there's plenty of people in town doing it seems like nothing just to hire someone to be like your reporter or something, you know, or, or to gather facts or I don't know, whatever, whatever you're going to do as your like, you know, prototype 
news office, but it's just him. And I'm like, as long as it's just you, you are the frontline reporter. Why don't you report on what you see? It's so <laughs> weird. Um, so anyway, so he's following, he follows out who is weirdly tolerant of this whole thing. And it's actually, um, Merrick who ends up getting irritated and walking out. Um, because Al won't give him a quote that he can use and then starts uh, dictating uh, his version of how uh, of how events went down. Um, and yeah, Merrick just ends up getting irritated and walking out. Yeah. Um, so all of this, though, plays over uh, as Seth is walking to his house where um, he has sent uh, Martha and William. And uh, he is officially now going to 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 do the domestic life thing um and it turns out martha's been waiting up for him the whole day which is yeah i mean it does it does because we talked last episode about you know is he just going to leave them to do their own thing or is it going to be uh uh is he going to actually you know try and move in um and be a part of this you know try and make it a family um, and it seems like it, it, that is what he's going to do. And that is what Martha expected, although it's not clear if she, per se, wanted one way or the other. Yeah, again, really like, know. we're still in this situation with Martha where we don't really know where she's at. Um, and I think we get an interesting, it's almost, you know, I feel like a detective. We get an interesting piece of evidence here <laughs> at the end um, with when she says, I, rem- I removed the bundling board. Right, yeah. And you can read that a lot of different ways. The, the way I initially read it at first is she is basically saying to Seth, I accept this relationship. I, I am not, I am not, I am not forced into it. And I don't want you to feel put upon because you feel like I am being forced into the situation. Like put your mind at ease. It's okay. But I think you can also read it as um, her almost saying, uh, from the other direction, like trying to put his mind at ease, even though she doesn't feel that way. Right. Even though she feels like I don't want to do this, but I don't want him to feel like uh, I, I don't want him to know that. Yeah, no, that's that that does seem to be the vibe. And, um, you know, you have this. Uh, you know, you still have these. I, we were talking last episode about how, you know, there's the there's this like known thing that everyone nobody wants to talk about and and then you have people sort of awkwardly coming up with um uh coming up with uh of with explanations or like uh, you know something to say that'll make the situation a little bit less awkward um so like for example um earlier in the episode when charlie's trying to keep uh seth from going to the gym um he sees that seth is crying and he gets up and walks away and then like goes on a like a little tangent about how oh actually he was farting and that's why he had to get up and walk away uh and it, you know and trying to basically distract from this obvious thing that he knows that Seth's crying and Seth knows that he knows that he's crying and it's just like this very obvious thing and it, and the same thing happens when when um Seth goes into the house and like to a lesser extent it's less obvious but i think it's it's a similar thing where it's like oh yeah i got this stuff back for the boy so he can see it you know, and it's like he doesn't want to address this very awkward first night. Um, but but you're right. Uh, Martha puts him a bit at ease uh, by saying that she got rid of the, this bundling board. Um, so, Which, by the way, I do want to say when I searched bundling board, the first autocomplete result was bundling board Deadwood, <laughs> which, I thought, which I thought was funny. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it seems to be a thing. It's also in Amish communities and whatever. I would just looked up some pictures of it. Um, but yeah, I've not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not familiar with such practice, but it must be not not me. <laughs> it must be a thing, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and then over this very very the very last scene, um, Al is still talking seemingly to himself because I think Merrick has left at this point. Um, and he's he's talking. So in the in the first bit, he's talking about how people can advertise their businesses in his uh, story. Uh, he's like, "Why don't you mention a few businesses? They'll get free advertising. It'll be good for everyone." Um, and then Merrick leaves. And then in the last bit, he's sort of doing his own ad where he's talking about what the gem is and that it's open seven days a week and you can come and gamble and you can, you can, uh, you know, spend time with a lady and whatever. Um, and uh, he, he says this and it's, and he's, you know, he, he's very clear about the seven days a week thing. And it's clear that, that this is what I was referring to earlier. Like that's what he wants, right? He just wants that to be what happens, and he wants it to be uninterrupted. Um, and that seems to be the exact opposite of what he's getting. Um, <laughs> hmm. uh, but that is what his, you know, he wants that. That's the boat he doesn't want rocked. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll. Uh, I guess I guess we'll leave it there. Yeah. Um, what I I didn't even look at what the next episode is. Geez, hang on. I believe it's new money. Uh, oh, we also didn't mention this one's. This episode was directed by Ed Bianchi too. Yes, uh, just like the last one. Yep. Also very well directed. Yep. Yeah. Next week is new money. New money. Um, and I think did they mention something about money in this episode? I could have sworn they somebody said something about new money. Sure. I was probably Cy. I think I'm sure somebody will point this out. Cy did, yeah, and it could again uh, per usual. You know, these can have all sorts of meanings. It could be the new, um, the new, the new uh, brothel. It could be. Uh, any number of things but uh, let's let's see I guess we'll find out next week yeah alright talk to you then alright talk to you then